My guest today is Gabriel Byrne. He's the author of the new memoir, Walking with Ghosts. Lily King says of Walking with Ghosts that it's exquisite. This book feels like the culmination of a long literary career and not the debut of a famous actor. Gabriel makes himself fully vulnerable while in total command of language and form. She says, I've never read a memoir so raw and honest and literary and absolutely staggeringly brilliant. Gabriel Byrne was born in Dublin and has starred in over 80 films for some of the cinema's leading directors. He won a Golden Globe for his performance on HBO's In Treatment. On Broadway, he won the Outer Critics Circle Award for Outstanding Actor and has been nominated twice for a Tony Award. He's speaking with us today from Maine, where he is now living. He also resides in Manhattan. When I read this book, I felt like I was in the hands of a writer and not an actor. Yeah. I mean, you know, even though you've made over 50, 80 films, yeah, yeah. I felt like I was reading the work of a very accomplished writer that I was in dialogue with for lots of different years. So just, you know, talking about that, talk about a little bit about, you know, it's called Walking with Ghosts. Mm -hmm. And part of why I felt that way, I think, is because of the unique structure of the book, mm -hmm. and the way you approached it all. So, you know, talk a little bit about that. When I started to write the book, I hadn't intended to write a memoir. I was sketching just some images that were persistent in my in my head. Um, it, 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 you know, I sometimes think that those images are like you know, you know, when you come on a fence and a, sh a sheep has left a bit of wool there. It's just snagged, and you look at it and you say, hmm, "I wonder why that's there. What? Why is that image there? What does that image actually mean?" And I think that um, the one thing that I learned about the, the, the act of memory uh, from writing this is, number one, it, memory is fragmented. Um, it, it, it doesn't move in a chronological past where you say that happened and then that. You know, memory jumps between the present and the past constantly. Um, it also jumps between fact and imagination. And sometimes you have to excavate uh, the moment to see whether this is a fact or is this what you think you remember. An, an, exa an extreme example of that would be for, you know, if you went back to the house that you lived in as an adult and you'd say, God, it's really small here. Hmm. Now, th that's an example of how memory can be unreliable. And that's why I think I took a while to write the book because I wanted to test every image from every point of view to say, okay, this is as truthful as I can be. And I don't think we really test our memories as much as we should do because people will say, ah, you know, I don't really remember that much. It's kind of hazy. But if you get into the frame of mind where you, I'm not saying meditate, but if you really concentrate on the image, unconscious memories will start to bubble up. Because I don't think that 
most of what happens to us goes into this big vacuum that we that we can't remember. It goes somewhere, and we have to find a way to um, to access it. What are the things that you really remember in life? You remember kind of remarkable things. The day your mother said this, or you went to that school, or whatever. But what I was interested in was those tiny moments on which our lives turn and that we don't sometimes, you know, we, do, we don't think they're important. But going up the stairs and opening a door and walking in can change your life as much as a major event that happens. So I was curious about those little moments. And how are those moments stitched together with the big moments to create who you are at the moment? The meeting of your, you know, your, your partner, you know, what are the circumstances surrounding that night? And in the book I talk about how, well, my mother said to me that we all come into the world randomly, or do we? Um, she talked about uh, when she met my father um, and that she got off the bus a stop before she was due to get off because she wanted to have a cigarette because women weren't supposed to be smoking on the buses at that time. And she went into a doorway and it was raining and she didn't have any matches. And the man standing beside her was my father who had a match and lit her cigarette. And she said to me, if I had matches or if it hadn't been raining or I didn't smoke, you wouldn't be sitting here. And that really made me think about how we come into the world. And so rather than saying I was born in Dublin, you know, I, I wanted to say, how did I come into the world in Dublin? So, so that's really what I, I was trying to do, building little bridges between unremarkable moments and then major moments and stitching them together. And the effect that that has is we get to know the essence of your mother and your father. You know, the details of how, you know, what they did in their lives uh, are important, but equally as important is who they were as people. And through very little sort of these few, you know, few ways, these few memories that you had of them, I feel like, I feel like I knew your mother. I feel like I knew your father. I, you know, you know, even in the short time that you mentioned, you know, that, that heartbreaking scene about your sister, Marion, you know, I mean, I, it all came clear to me, but it was not even a half a page. I don't think. Um, so the power with which you wrote, um, I think affirms the choice that you made in terms of taking on the structure. Was your process to be inward? Did you go outward? Did you ask other people to reaffirm those memories or to affirm them in some way? Only, only my mother. And I had asked her at a time when I wasn't even remotely thinking of writing anything. But something, it was, there was this little experiment that I did. And, and I'll pass this on to your, to your listeners or, or readers. They may, they may find it of interest. Um, all of us have a story that sometimes we think is ordinary. But there's no such thing as an ordinary story. Everybody's life is extraordinary. When people get older, rather than being more acknowledged for the lives that they've lived, 
we tend to compartmentalize them as being kind of irrelevant. Oh, they belong to another generation. They don't really have anything to say to us. But inside so many people burns this need to tell their story and to sit down with um, or an elderly parent or grandparent and ask them about the circumstances of their lives and give it the same uh, attention as you would give it to an A&E or a, a PBS biography and say, I want to know about your life and I want to know about the things, the remarkable things that happened and the things that, the, or, the things that you think of as ordinary. Uh, where did you meet your husband? Where did you go to school? What was that like? What was it like living through the Second World War? What was Vietnam living through the whole Vietnam era like? Nuclear war, the Depression, all those huge social events that influence people's lives, as well as the personal day-to-day -day triumphs and tragedies of life. And so by acknowledging older people and listening to them, they can help to illuminate our own lives. And we, we live in a, in a strange kind of a world uh, where ageism now is the new kind of sexism. I, I, I've noticed that it's okay to be funny, to make jokes about older people. I've seen that creep into, into discourse. Um, it's a way of demeaning, diminishing a life. I did this little experiment where I went around and I interviewed older people about their lives. I just stuck up a, a little video camera and I got kind of good at the questions after a while so that I was able to compress everything. So I would, I would talk to people like, for example, I am, um, one of the people I talk, write about in the book is a grave digger. And I wanted to ask him what it's like, you know, I left out a great deal of what he said because it wasn't relevant to what I was writing about. But I, this was a man who spent his life in the act of burying people. And um, so he was the, he's the last person to touch your mother, your father, or yourself before you move on and he said to me that you know the, the the energy of life that's trapped inside a body is something that you have to be reverential about and he said i treat these people as if uh they were my mother and father and i want people to know that they were treated with uh with reverence his views on life and death were really interesting he said that, that, you know he, he he conducted a funeral once he buried a man once whose wife was dying and the husband couldn't stop laughing he was hysterical and he said he knew that the man was crying but actually it was coming out as laughter people people tend to live in extremis during the morning period when they go to the graveyard and they, they're feeling things that they haven't felt before or at least they don't feel so extremely. Well, I put him down and I asked him about, you know, I said one of the things I said to him was, in the graveyard that you look after, why are the daisies around the sycamore tree? Why do you never cut those daisies around that? Right, right. And he said, uh, because the fairies don't like that. And he didn't say that. He didn't say that in a way like, oh, because the fairies. He said, yeah. the fairies don't like it. 
And so as I pressed him, I came to understand that for that older, much older generation, um, fairies, the other world, the supernatural world was a way of explaining the real world. Uh, so for example, in fairy lore, uh, the idea of a changeling, if you had a sick child, they didn't understand cot death or, or you know, heart failure or anything like that. They were able to explain it by the fairies coming along, taking the healthy child and leaving a sickly child in its place. That's the way they saw the world. That's, that's how near he was connected to the pagan world. Mm -hmm. So, um, and he told me that story about the man who came back from England who uh, uh, didn't go to church and lived with this woman in sin. And when he died, he and the priest, the, um, the lawyer, went to the house and the unmarried woman came down the stairs in a dress, in, 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 in a wedding dress. Right, with, right. With her father. And they put the ring on the dead man's finger. Right. And they right. married him. He wasn't saying that as any big deal. He was just telling me that. And I thought his insight into the world really fascinated me. As he was telling me this, uh, he had to go to the door of the house where we were recording the little thing. And he opened the door and he said, turn down that bloody racket. <laughs> and it was his kid on, or his grandkid on an Xbox. Exactly. So, so in one room here was a man talking about the fairies. Right. And in the next room was a kid talking about, so. The clash of cultures, right? The clash of cultures, the clash of ages, the clash of perspectives. And it made me think, like if I hadn't talked to him, that way of seeing the world was gone with him. You know, that's a really, really wonderful, um, wonderful point. And what's interesting to me and what you did with memory, and, and the reason why I brought up the structure is because I loved, I loved the way you juxtapose certain things. And you could see it almost happening in your own mind. For instance, the fitting for your first communion, right, was juxtaposed with your fitting by Johnny Versace years and years later. Yes, yes. Um, it, 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 yes, um, I mentioned Gianni Versace's name not because I wanted a name drop. Right? No, of course, it made perfect but, sense in the book. Yeah, but because that summed up to me in a strange way the journey, the, 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 the sometimes incredible journey of my life from rural Ireland in the 1950s where ambition was not, not a word that anybody knew, really. Um, and the sense of when I was getting my clothes for my first communion, we were dressed from secondhand clothes shops. And um, I remember the shame I felt being in the dressing room, taking off my, my clothes. And why we had to be dressed like this when there were kids out there who were dressed from fancy shops. To being in a room in Paris with Jenny Versace coming in with his little dog and his assistant and the assistant measuring me and Versace just, uh, you know, you know, watching me and, and then come over and do a little bit on the shoulders. And then uh, he, he embraced me and I remember feeling the stubble of his face against my, my cheek. And then he made this suit for me that um, 
I wore to his fashion show. I'd never been to a fashion show in my life before, but it was in Paris and I was invited to it. And at the end of the show, uh, we were all sitting around having dinner at this big party. And he said to me, I'm very, I'm very tired. I, I'm going to go home to Miami to, to rest. And four days later, he was dead. When I was reading the early part of the book, I kept asking myself, okay, when does the transition to an actor become? <laughs> because you had done so many other things and it wasn't very clear that acting was going to be something that you did. Although that first acting in uh, the nativity play meant so much. Mm-hmm. And then you, you know, someone in an offhanded way suggested that you work with a theater group, right? That was a kind of semi-professional theater group. But that was many years in between. Yes. So talk a little bit about about that journey, about how that came to be. I still don't understand really how I became an actor. But looking back over my my life and the incidents that happened in it that I remember vividly, it seemed inevitable because the things that I did were all in their strange way a preparation. Becoming an altar boy, for example, was uh, a version of being in the theater. You know, a church is a theater, a synagogue is a theater. It's where ritual takes place and the congregation is the audience and so forth. And I was incredibly shy as a child, incredibly um, sensitive. And I did not want to be the focus of attention at all. Yet I did this thing of walking out at seven years of age into, um, uh, into a crowded church as, as an altar boy. Even when I was selling encyclopedias, I was kind of acting. Um, I remembered seeing, being brought to the theatre by my mother for the first time. Um, where the world that was out there, the world of America came, like a fantasy world came to Dublin. Roy Rogers on his horse on the stage of the Gaiety Theatre in Dublin. When Trigger came out on the stage and stood up on his back legs and Roy Rogers was on top of him. For a child of seven or eight, this was beyond magic. It was beyond any kind of magic. Um, my mother had gone with her friend to that same theatre and there was an alleyway at the back and Judy Garland sang from her dressing room window to the packed alleyway. So here you were on the one hand marooned in Dublin where nothing ever happens and then you had these amazing uh, visitations from people from another planet uh, movies had the same effect because you were transported in imagination into worlds that you couldn't even dream of. Um, you talk about you talk about how the chapel was your first theater. Actually, you mentioned yes. that. Yes. And is it fair to say that there was a confluence then that happened? Because the one through line is through your mother. You did spend lots of time in the movie theaters as well as in regular theater when you were young, and so was there that that confluence of all of that happening at once in your mind and then the nativity, you know, acting in the play and all of that. So you did, 
there, there was an identification that was going on at some point. All I know is that the, the day when I was, you know, sitting on a box that was covered in silver and I was supposed to be sitting on a rock in Bethlehem as the three wise men came. Um, and I had a, a beard made out of cotton wool that fell off and one of the kids peed all over the floor who was supposed <laughs> to be hell. And um, but, but, but parents, all the parents were, were so uncritical that we were, we might as well have been down Hamlet uh, and brilliantly. And I remember when my mother and father brought me to the zoo as a kind of a, a, a treat for being in the play. Um, I felt this warm glow of, of being praised for something. And praise was not given out lightly in Ireland at that time. The idea that you'd be hugged and praised and, you know, all that, that just wasn't in the culture. We didn't grow up in that kind of culture. And uh, so, you know, my parents being pleased and all these people clapping, I had no idea what that meant, but it, it had this little warm glow uh, inside me. But that didn't, that didn't happen again for a very, very long time. I was ancient by the time I went into acting. I was 28 or 29. And I was 40 before I came to America um, to do Miller's Crossing. I mean, that is, that is like, that is ancient by Hollywood standards. When you think that people are making pictures at, you know, 21, 22. And what's astonishing to me is that I had a career in films uh, from then on, uh, after I did Miller's Crossing, um, that took me from Ireland and London to America, to the place that I never thought I would ever, ever get to, never mind being films in America. And um, I've told this story before, but because you're from Miami, it's worth, it's worth repeating. I saved up uh, when I was teaching forever. I could never get the money to get a ticket to go to America, even on the cheap flights. But there was a very, very, very cheap flight that went from Dublin to Miami. Mm. And um, I thought Miami is where I'm, that's where I'm going to go. And Miami, Miami Vice, Miami. <laughs> it was like... So is this this was in the eighties? It was in the eighties. This 80s? was uh, this would have been uh, yeah in the very in the early eighties. Mm -hmm. And uh, my brother had said to me, "Jesse, you're going to go to America." Oh my god! Now listen, when when you get there, you have to call me and you've got to tell me what it's like because I'm coming as well. I once I get these few quid in order, I'm coming after you. But you have to tell me. So I arrived and. Uh, in the plane touchdown and for to come in that plane and to see Miami and the water and the swimming pools and having left Dublin in the rain, you've no idea what that was like. The juxtaposition of these two, of these two worlds, the sunlight, the light coming in through the cabin window, the blue of the sea, the islands landing. I, 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 I called my brother and he said, so you're in America, what's it like? I said, well, there's, there's like planes all on the runway and there's people. He said, you're in the airport. <laughs> you don't need a report from the airport. Get out into the city. But even the airport was exotic. Even <laughs> Miami airport was exotic. Do you remember so, any of your time in Miami? Do you remember what you did? I, 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 I certainly do. I mean, I was walking in a daze up and down um, 
Miami Beach, the old Art Deco area. Yes, the old Art Deco area. And um, I had no idea where where I was staying or anything. I just stayed in, eventually ended up in some small little place outside the city. But it didn't matter to me. I didn't care. Yeah. I, I wasn't in Ireland. I was in America. Yeah. Um, and you know, when you're on a plane like that, you know, the idea that you're on a plane is amazing. And you're looking right. at the wing of the plane and you're thinking, God, I'm on a plane and I'm going to America. I mean, that's the way maybe an eight-year-old kid would think now. But um, for me, that was a huge, huge experience. You have a wonderful scene about the, being in the first nativity play with the boy who pees. And mm. I, I kind of have a similar memory when I was in preschool. I was in some sort of play and one of the girls or one of the boys was peeing all over the place. <laughs> and I, I remember it, but it didn't lead me to an 80 film career. I'll tell you that. Uh, anyway, but then you juxtapose it with that great, great scene from your first film Excalibur with uh, John Borman. I loved, I loved all of that. I loved the, you know, when you, when you were learning how to horseback ride and you just happened to go out with a ride with someone you later found out was Ava Gardner. Yes. I mean, that's pretty yeah. remarkable. Yeah, that was, um, we were told that we had, you know, we were asked, did we, uh, could we ride horses? And every lawyer in Dublin was in that movie because nobody could ride. Whoever saw a horse that you could ride in Dublin. So everybody lied. And the most convincing lawyers got into the movie. And, um, and so they said, well, we need you to uh, take a few lessons because I, I indicated that, yes, I was an expert, but I was a bit rusty because I hadn't ridden for like five or six years, which was a complete lie. I had been up on a dray horse, on a plough horse when I was a child. That was the extent of it. But we, we were being asked to ride polo ponies. And so they sent me to this place called the Lila Bloom School of Horse Riding in Hyde Park. Mm. And um, the guy who was in charge of the horses sent me out on this nag with this uh, older woman. Uh, and he said, um, well, just walk because, you know, the police have been fining people for speeding on horses in the, in the park. Uh, and I thought, well, that's not going to be happening with me. So I walked around Hyde Park with this woman and we talked and she said, well, you know, what do you, I said, oh, I'm, an, I'm an actor and uh, I've got this part in a movie. And um, she said, well, what kind of horses are you going to ride? I said, well, they're talking about polo ponies. And she was absolutely shocked. And she said, you know, a polo pony responds to just a move of your finger and they're incredibly fast. And I was saying, yeah, um, I think I'll be able to work up to that, you know, by the time it happens. She was telling me about, you know, living in London and she was telling me about growing up and, you know, how she never wore shoes when she was a kid and all the rest of it. And uh, we got back to the thing. She put her horse in. Uh, she went away. The guy said to me, you know who that was, don't you? And I said, no, who? who? He said, that was Ava Gardner. <laughs> now, if I had known it was Ava Gardner, I would have been asking her about, you know, I probably would have bored her to death. She probably would have galloped away from me. But the fact that I didn't know who she was allowed us to be just friendly. And, and we were out for an hour and a half. Um, and 
that first film, I had no idea what I was doing. Well, you, you go on to say that you didn't realize that they were going to have you in full, in full regalia, in yes. full night regalia. So you were riding a polo pony, you know, yes. in full regalia. <laughs> so, um, it, it was a uh, real armor. It, yeah, it was, like right. most, most night movies you see have like fake plastic right. kind of armor. So, but, the, but John Borman wanted the movie to look authentic. So we were all done up in this incredibly heavy armor so that you had to be hoisted onto these polo ponies who immediately took off with all these liars on the, you know, all being bounced around like tin cans. And I had a helmet that had a big snout on the front of it. Um, to make me look fearsome. And I could only see out through this part, like, you know, just barely, my eyes just appeared. So it was like being inside a, a letter box that I was bouncing up and down in, and with this horse taken off wildly, no feet in the stirrups, no nothing. And eventually the horse said, you know, enough of this, and stopped, and I went out over its head. <laughs> and <laughs> that's why no no it's it was a very I, I love that scene you know the other thing that really kind of was remarkable about this book was your incredible sense of honesty and compassion about everything that you went through whether it was you know very challenging or not and one of the things you know you and I are about the same age and the thing that's kind of remarkable to me is it's hard for me to imagine at the age of 11 picking up, leaving your family, and in your case, you went to the seminary. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, I mean, I read those pages, and it was also right at the beginning of a change in our culture. It was the beginning of the 60s. So talk a little bit about that dislocation. And also, you were very open about, you know, about, uh, about just how regressive it all was, the entire experience. Well, it was an extremely religious country at the time. And um, the church and the state really had the population in a grip that was so repressive. Hard to believe now, but say somebody like Edna O'Brien, uh, whose first book had come out in, I think, 1962 or three, maybe, uh, called The Country Girls was burned in the village square. That's, that's not that long ago. And she's still writing. Uh, so her family were absolutely mortified and scandalized by the fact that she'd written this book, which is now, when we look at it, mild. But Edna O'Brien was one of the first people, with some, uh, also with John McGarren, who... Um, who, who, who went much further than any literature had gone before. Edna's book was about the sexual yearnings, more the romantic yearnings of a young girl. But this was regarded as a line crossed and the parish priest set fire to the book in her village where she was born. That's the kind of society we're living in. It was ruled over by a tyrant called Archbishop McQuaid and he and the president of Ireland signed the constitution together. So if there was anything left out that the church didn't like, it was put in. So um, Catholicism was pervasive and 
regressive and, and oppressive. So to have a priest in the family was regarded as a great blessing from God. So the, 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 the men who recruited uh, children, basically, to go away to these seminaries targeted the imagination of children. So they showed them pictures of men and straw hats and airplanes and crossing rivers and everything. I said, oh God, I'd love to be doing that. Because it was an escape from, from Dublin, from Ireland. Um, and the predictability, the grayness of what Dublin, I couldn't articulate it, but this seemed like a great, because it was an appeal to my imagination. And so at 11, I left Ireland to go to another country uh, on, a, on, a, on a boat, on a particularly rough crossing from one country to the other. I can only compare it to somebody from Miami going to Holland at 11 years of age and what that actually might mean in terms of culture shock, loneliness. Um, um, you just couldn't articulate it. And so when I was there, of course, it seems almost like it's almost like it's written into the story of anybody who has anything to do with uh, Catholic priests, um, abuse um, there was was rampant. And uh, I uh, was called one night to a priest's room. Uh, because he wanted to tell me the facts of life. And as he was telling me the facts of life, he was abusing me. And other kids had been brought to his room to hear their confessions. So he was using Catholicism. He was using those rituals uh, to, to do what he wanted to do. So under the guise of doing something really um, meaningful for you, telling you how babies came into the world, or hearing your confession, he was actually in the most repellent way invading the innocence of your of yourself, your very soul. And um, when I was recounting that in the book, I, I I didn't want to just go the predictable way. I, I really thought about it, and I thought, do I want to put this out into the world? And I thought, you know what, I do, because abuse hasn't gone away. And it takes myriad forms. It can be domestic abuse. It can be sexual. It can be uh, emotional. They're all very where where one person misuses their power to uh, to diminish another person and uh, destroy. In my case, destroyed innocence and trust. Trust was the thing that, in retrospect, I look back on and it was broken. I wanted to. Um, look at that incident and really look at how an adult in a powerful position seduces an 11 year old child what language do they use what how do they prepare the ground for it and i remember the conversation like as if it was being played on a tape recorder to me because i hadn't heard language like this before i didn't i didn't know i didn't understand those words and um, but because he was an authority figure and because he was God's chosen, I assumed that whatever he was saying and whatever he was doing was right. Anyway, um, I think that for a very long time, for about maybe 40 years, um, I kept that, as I said in the book, 
buried under concrete. And occasionally I, I would get out a hairpin and try to pick at it, when actually what was needed was a jackhammer to get at what that was about. And it was just after the time on computers, like my, my son was like already uh, really au fait with computers. And I said, so if I type in somebody's name here, I can get information, yeah. So I Googled this guy and the information came up instantly. I was like, oh. And then I had to decide, did I want to contact this man? And if I did decide to contact him, what did I want from him? Um, one of the things that I have to say about him when I was 11, uh, he had the most gentle uh, voice. It, it was a voice of satin. It was warm, reassuring, gentle. And when you're in a position like that and you're lonely, an authority figure who, who, who has that kind of aura around them, you, you kind of gravitate. You don't see anything beyond that. You're just looking for some kind of comfort. And so uh, when I called him, he was in a retirement home and he was quite advanced in age. And a woman answered the phone. And I said, can I speak to this, to this man? This was after many weeks of thinking, should I do this or should I just let it go? And um, I heard the phone being put down, clattering off the desk. I heard the squeak of her shoes. I heard a door creak open and then silence. And then I heard two sets of footsteps come back and the door open and this heavy lifting of the phone you know, as if somebody, you know, an older person, not quite sure how to pick up the phone. It was, and I heard his voice for the first time in 40 years. And what was shocking to me and what I hadn't expected was it was as gentle mm. and as kind and as satiny as I'd remembered it. And I asked him, did he remember me? And he said, no. And I said, well, I remember you. Hmm. And he said, well, that's possible, you know, because you teach so many kids and, you know, um, and of course I remember that, uh, you know, I used to teach there. And, but so I already seen a photograph of him in the Philippines with two young kids, hmm. his arm around both of them. And I thought they've transferred him out there. Hmm. That's what he's doing out there. And I, I couldn't go any further with the conversation because to be angry with somebody who doesn't remember you. It's like playing tennis with no strings in the bat. There's nothing to hit the ball back with. So I just, I just left it and I put it down. And I started to think about it afterwards. And what I, what, what I kind of talked about in the book was this. Um, I was looking for some kind of resolution. It's a fact of life that there doesn't have to be resolution. We expect it. We're led to believe that it's there. But anybody who's suffered a trauma, our, our sense of justice requires that they find um, retribution and justice. But that's not necessarily the case. And then I thought, I have to accept that that's a fact of life. Now, the other thing is, it brings up the idea of forgiveness. 
do you forgive people who have wronged you? And I can't remember if I quoted in the book, but I meant this um, part of my, you know, little project about interviewing older people. I interviewed um, two Holocaust survivors in New York. And uh, she had survived a concentration camp with her mother. This was in the book. <laughs> oh, it was in the book. I, I, because I know that when I came to the final draft, some of it. Well, anyway, the point. Uh, I'm, glad, of, I'm glad it was, too. Yes, and me too, because I know there was some opposition to it. Because somebody said to me, you, you can't compare your trauma with the trauma of well, six million people. That's not what I'm doing. Right. I'm talking about can you forgive? Is it necessary to forgive to move on? And I asked the, the lady, do you forgive? And she said, yes, I do. I've had to forgive in order to live. Do I forget? No. But in order for me to move on, that's what I had to do. And it took me a very, very long time to do it. And for me, the young people of Germany are not my enemies. Um, and she said, if you think that that couldn't happen somewhere else, you know, we tend to look at it and say, she was saying, we tend to look, oh, that was Germany in the 30s and it was Italy. She said, that's, it, you know, fascism, um, fascism is not dead, it sleeps. It just requires the right circumstances. Look at our experience today, right? Uh, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And... Um, well, I think the idea of forgetting, I, I think you can't forget because no. forgetting allows it to happen again. And I think, I think that's important. Well, the man, the husband, hit the table so hard that all the condiments and everything flew around the place. And he said, there is no such thing as forgiveness. Mm. You live with the lack of forgiveness. Mm. That's what keeps you going. Mm. And she had said, I live with forgiveness. And mm. that's what keeps me going. So I thought to myself, I'm in that world between forgiving, not forgiving, forgetting, not forgetting. And there was a slight um, addendum to that. And I, I, I had gone to Dachau. Uh, I had been there two or three times before. And I went there again. I was working in Germany. And I couldn't be in Munich and not go there. So I went up and uh, um, I walked in the gates. And people may, see, may, may think this is irrelevant, but I don't even really know why it's relevant. But to me, it is. I walked through the gates, uh, fully expecting to experience what I experienced before. But just inside there was a large patch of green grass. And on this green grass, there were children playing and tumbling over each other and chasing each other with the carefree abandon, abandonment of childhood. And there were wildflowers growing in the green grass and there were butterflies on it because it was early summer. And I thought to myself, I don't know what this means, but it means that life continues in all its beauty despite the horror of what happened there now as i said to this person who said to me oh you can't put that in i said no trauma uh, and the recovery from trauma um 
horrific as it is on one side, maybe not so horrific on the other. The recognition that life is to be lived in its beauty is not something we should be cheated of because of that. That's beautifully said. And I think, I think you, you express that perfectly in the book, absolutely perfectly. You do the same when you talk about your own sobriety, because, you know, I mean, you know, you talk about, you talk about when you had your first drink, I think, you know, when, when you were an altar boy, right? Um, and you suffered with it for so long. And, and one of the things that, you know, I've known, a, I've known a number of actors in my life and, and, you know, at heart, so many of them are insecure. Um, and I think, you know, in some ways, choosing, the, choosing to become an actor while you have that insecurity is a very, very difficult thing. You know, it's one of the most difficult things to do if you're, you know, if, if that is part of who you are. And I, and I got the sense that drink was empowering for you at some point. And then you made peace with that and you understood that you needed help. So talk about that journey a little bit and, and, and you know, what your life has been like since. I think, I, I don't know whether it's inherited, whether my body is physically allergic to alcohol, um, that it's a disease that one person suffers from and another person doesn't. I don't know. I don't even think it matters because what matters is that it brought me to, yes, it was trying to fill a hole in my life, a spiritual hole. I mean, um, Jung, the, uh, the famous analyst said that addiction uh, was a spiritual search for something deep, deep, deep inside. Uh, that happened to be the drug of choice in the culture that I came from. I, 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 I wasn't that interested in, in, in drugs. Uh, but well, your dad worked in a Guinness factory. Right? He worked in a Guinness factory. And, you know, so much was drink incorporated into the world that we lived in that they would go to mass in the morning at seven o'clock. They'd go into the brewery. They'd have two pints of undiluted Guinness at eight o'clock in the morning two on their break, two at lunchtime, two on the afternoon break, two when they finished, and then they go out drinking. That was the day they lived. There was a fireman I knew who drank 17 pints of beer on his way to a fire. Wow. Uh, he could have peed out the fire. Uh, but here's, here's the thing, that alcohol, alcohol was a friend because it made you feel it gave you a kind of a sense of power. It warmed you inside and you felt, and then it stopped becoming that. As anybody who's addicted to, any, to anything will tell you, that you spend so much time chasing that first euphoria. Uh, the problem of addiction isn't necessarily just about alcohol. People are addicted to cigarettes, Oxycontin, shopping, sex, anything that takes you out of the world that you're living in now and takes you away into somewhere. Because there's, there's, there's a kind of a, a nefarious ritual to drink and you're always dealing with it. Even if it's a hangover the next day, you have to, and it, it, it keeps life out there. 
crazy in all as that may sound. And I think there comes a time when it stops being your friend. There's only two ways that uh, alcoholism can end, and that's death or insanity. And um, anybody who's ever had the good luck or the bad luck to see the inside of a ward in a mental hospital mm. where people who have drank so much that they're just running around naked with, with their motorcycle helmets on them because mm. they bang their heads off the mm. wall. Um, we tend to either romanticize alcoholism, uh, we, we romanticize alcoholism and creativity, Dylan Thomas, Brendan B, and John sure. Sheila, all these amazing guys, mm -hmm. would they have been, Scott Fitzgerald, Faulkner, mm -hmm. would they have been those great writers if they hadn't been drinking? Well, the answer is, they would have been, and maybe they would have been better, and they mm -hmm. would have produced greater work. Dylan Thomas was dead at 40, Brendan Bean was right. dead at 38. Um, and so, uh, uh, we romanticize, or we make fun of him. We think it's a joke to see somebody being drunk. But there's nothing funny about either being drunk or having to live with somebody who drinks. But when I hear about people addicted to OxyContin and people like the Sackler family walking free and not having to, not having to be made responsible for the devastation that that caused, the pharmaceutical industry and how they get people addicted uh, to, drugs and tablets and things that in many cases they don't need. I'm not saying that pharmaceutical business is all evil. Of course it's not. But there's a huge problem of addiction in America. Huge. And it's rarely mentioned. And we need to educate our children about it. Um, we need to be more aware of the facts of it. And we need to realize how dangerous it is, how truly dangerous it is to become addicted to something. And it happens gradually. Fortunately, I, I got to a place where I said, do I want to live or die? And one of, the, one of the awful things about addiction is you get to a place where it doesn't really matter. I'm, I'm more proud of the fact that I'm more than 20 years sober. Uh, and, and that I stopped it. And I stopped being ashamed of it. Like that addiction is a moral failing that you somehow you're a bad person because of this. It's a disease. And I think in time to come, we look back at this and say, how could they have been so Neanderthal as to think this was just people getting drunk and not snapping yeah. out of it? So, how could people think it was just a matter of will, right? Of willpower, snap out of it. Like people say to depressed people, oh, come on, what's wrong with you? Snap out of it, life is good. No, and, and you know, I, I, um, I, I can't agree with you more. Um, it's the same way that, you know, we have criminalized drugs, you know, in a way that people need help. It's not, they don't need to be thrown into jail. Your Your hesitancy about celebrity is something that is to be admired. But at the same time, when you did bring up names in the book, you brought them up for a very specific purpose. And the purpose 
I found such delight as a bookseller in your in your talking about Richard Burton, who says, you know, poetry, the sound. Uh, I think it was him saying this: poetry, the sound and music of words, soothe me. Always have and books. Home is where the books are. What I've always rather wanted was to be a writer. That that's come that's kind of phenomenal coming yes. coming from Burton. I think. Yes. Um, he, it gave me a, a kind of indicate, you know, it, it rounded him out for me in a way that I hadn't heard before. He was the best read actor I've ever met. Mm. Um, he didn't, he never wasn't reading. Um, he had a house in Switzerland in a place called Seligny, where he actually was buried when he died. He was another man destroyed by alcohol and dead at 57 an old man who couldn't even turn in his chair because of, you know, the effects of a fall that he'd had on, in his spine um, as a result of uh, alcohol. But he, on the top part of his house, in the, in, the, um, in, the, in the attic, was a library. And there was shelf upon shelf upon shelf. He could go from Raymond Chandler to Faust reading. He, he read Penny Dreadfuls, he read uh, Miles McGoplin, it didn't matter. He was just a compulsive reader. And a brilliant talker. Um, and loved, truly loved literature. And of course he, he was a brilliant speaker of poetry. Maybe one of the best. And it, 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 it's a thrill to listen to his recordings of uh, of Dylan Thomas's poetry, you can get it. You know, you can get it. I'm sure on on YouTube. What a voice! And he he said, you know, look with Dylan's poetry, and this is true. I think uh, oftentimes of what, what people call esoteric poetry is that sometimes the sense of it is in the sound, and that you can't be imposing logic on something that's not meant to have logic. And Irish people speak a bit like that. What, what you say doesn't really, it's the sound of what you say that makes the sense rather than the sense making the sense, if you know what I mean. I but do, he, I um, he, he never really wanted to be an actor. What I didn't know at the time was he was keeping this diary which was eventually published as the letters of, or the diaries of Richard Burton, which ran to about 500 pages. And um, I, I often wonder if he had, if he had lived, uh, he would for sure have become a writer. Another actor who became a writer was Dirk Bogart. I don't know if you remember him. Oh, I do. I do. I loved, I didn't know that he was, that's right. He did write. Something. He did. Yeah. Um, yeah. and he, he wrote uh, autobiography. Now, I read all his autobiographies and I was struck by, I, I hate to say this about it, but the falseness of it. Right. And I, I, it, it was beautiful, but false. And I knew it when I read the way he wrote Irish people. He wrote about this Irish guy. And I said, no Irish person speaks like that. Now, go back to the memories that he had when he was a kid. These are idyllic. These are not real. They're imaginative and beautifully written, but they're not real. So when I came to do my thing, I said, I want to avoid all that. No sentiment, no nostalgia, no, no fake 
prolonging of incidents to make them funnier, uh, not making them more miserable than they are, um, trying to see what the, the real connections in life are for all of us, but not trying to write something that was going to please people. Well, you succeeded so beautifully. And I just have um, a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of things that struck me. I, I want to know a little bit more about Robbie, the bookseller. All right. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> You're it's, amazing that you, it's amazing that you pick up on it. In fact, this morning it's snowing here in, um, in Maine as we talk. And uh, his shop was... Um, just opposite uh, where I could see from my window, I could see his book shop. Was it in, in Maine, you mean? or? Oh, no, no. Well, this I, was in London. In, in, in London. London. In London. Yeah. And he sold, uh, like people would come there for books that they couldn't find anywhere else. And he had no system of, uh, you know, like <laughs> I'm sure like you have, like you would say, I'd like uh, Daniel Defoe and you walk to D and right, you take it right. out. N- no filing, but <laughs> books piled, books here. Oh, I you love go, those stores. Y- y- you'd go in and you'd say, uh, Daniel Defoe and he'd say, Daniel Defoe, now let me see. <laughs> and then he'd root around and he'd come out uh, with, he'd say, well, I have an edition here from, you know, and that's the kind of book he was. And he used to, he used to come out of his shop. I, I was unemployed at the time. And I'd see him come out for a smoke uh, outside his shop. And he'd just stand there looking at people. And, you know, when you went in the door, a, a little bell would ring to alert him. And um, I would go over and sometimes we would repair to the pub to just, like, sit and talk because he'd be able to see out the pub window and see the bookshop if there's anybody come in in which case he'd leave you and go over right and um he used to talk about everything the day was too short for him and there wasn't enough time to talk about all the things that he wanted to talk about especially books and he, he was the one who like he said to me, look, there's beauty in paperbacks. There's, look, here, and the, the Penguin paperback that came out where classics were printed, you could put right. them in your pocket when you went on the bus. They had a lovely feel to them. But nothing for him replaced the hardback, right. the hardback copy that he could pull down. And, and the way he turned the pages even was reverential. He, he, he wasn't somebody who did that. He turned the pages as if they were delicate um, and could be. Uh, and years later, here's a funny thing. A friend of mine who was a novelist, a very well-known novelist in New York, he was talking also about the quality of a page and the typescript and how the typescript can bring your eyes to it or sometimes like make you not want to get involved with it, as is the cover. The New York Public Library had this thing where they invited several people to uh, to come and inspect an artifact in the library and uh, write about it. So he asked if he could see the manuscript of Ulysses, mm-hmm. uh, James Joyce's Ulysses. And they give you a pair of white gloves before you go in and they leave you in this room and you can't, you know, no bags, no nothing. 
So he sat there and he, and he turned the pages of Joyce's Ulysses with that same kind of reverence. And he was looking at me saying, Joyce touched this paper. And when Joyce was writing Ulysses in Trieste, he wrote it on the back of a suitcase mm. and um, amongst other places because he didn't have a, an office. Right. And my friend looked at the page and there was a tiny, tiny, tiny piece of the manuscript that was loose. Say something about that size. <laughs> and he looked around <laughs> and he swallowed it. Oh. And he said, I have something of Joyce. Oh, that, oh, that's when, when I went up there, um, they said, who, who would I said, well, I said, I'd like to see, I'd like to see something from Virginia Woolf. And they said, okay. So the man came in with his white gloves. I was sitting on my white gloves and he presented me with a walking stick. And he said, this is the walking stick that was taken out of the river when she walked into it. The touching of books, the feeling of them, the showing off of them mm -hmm. uh, was something that I always remember. So I, I got it. I managed to get a copy of um a first edition of Ulysses. From Sylvia Beach's... Uh, right, from... Shakespeare and Company. Right, a, for, wow. a first edition. I'm not, it, wasn't, it wasn't from Sylvia Beach, but it was a very, very, very... very early very, edition. And, and really well used, so I bought it, and I gave it to Richard Bourke. Oh, wow. And he was a big Ulysses fan. Wow. And um, I always... Um, I, I, I'm always thrilled to think that, you know, that that was a gift to him that he really, because he gave me great gifts. He wasn't thinking, oh, I'll give this guy. Right. It was the way he told me about his life, this honest way he said, don't chase fame. It's a poison chalice. Um, everybody's written about this. Faust has written about it. Don't chase it. The journey must be inward, not outward. From the beginning, when you talked about being on the hill and, you know, this was not the world you were in. I felt like I was in your world in a very similar way that I was inside the brain of Joyce. I was inside the brain of Gabriel Byrne. Okay. And I just want to read a quote. It was, it's a, first of all, the book is beautifully done. <laughs> so, so Grove Atlantic. Uh, yes, Ray could have been happy with that. I you feel very. You shouldn't have put your mug on the front. So it, it's Reg, not Robbie. It's Reg. Reg, and he would have said, "Look, I understand why they did, but." Yeah. Um, he, he, um, he, I like to think that he would have filed it away somewhere between, uh, <laughs> you know, Nosferatu, the vampire, and, uh, you know, gardening for beginners. You know what it reminds me of? Did you ever hear that? If you haven't, you should. It's an amazing Monty Python piece about the bookseller, about a guy who comes into a bookstore and is driving the bookseller mad <laughs> by asking him questions like, yeah. Do you have Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Titties? And he goes, you mean Tale of Two Cities by Dickens? No, no, this is Dickens with two Ks. <laughs> by the end, the bookseller is completely driven I mad. I must watch that. It's really quite good. You know, the way I felt about, I kept thinking about the way I felt about the book, and then I, I saw this quote, and, I, and it is the way I feel about it. It's by Sa Simon Van Bowie, and yes. he says of this book, a poetic journey 
into those secret realms of memory which dominate our lives but are rarely spoken about by revealing himself with such courage, compassion, and exquisite poise, Gabriel Byrne gives readers that rare gift. And this is where, this is where the brilliance of this book comes, of being able to see themselves in the feelings of another person. This book is more than, more than a memoir. It's a mirror that reflects the deepest parts of us in exile. And... And that is the way I felt about this. It was a mirror. It was, um, it was cathartic for me to read, and I can't thank you enough for it. And what I would love is if you could read a little something from it. This takes place on a hill that I used to go to when I was a child. And when I would look out from this hill, uh, there were just farms and fields and the, and the hills in the distance. And now when I went back as an older man, uh, all that was gone. There were apartments and uh, car parks and the, the, a motorway ran through the farms. And I realized that landscape doesn't belong to us. Um, home, in a way, doesn't belong to us either. Uh, but what does belong to us is, is the memory. And I remember looking at one particular area, which I had to really place... But, but there was a row of shops there, stores. And uh, it, this is just a reference to uh, a couple of the shops uh, that, that were there. Um, there was a row of shops, I remember. On the corner of the hardware shop where Grumpy Tom in canvas coat sold everything from rat poison to Christmas candles. Nothing a bother and the drapery where Betty worked. My mother, bought her, my mother bought her castle hosiery nylons and satin under things there. I liked to watch Betty in her nylon coat, beehive hair tied with a ribbon, pins in her mouth, moving around the shop in high heels. I could see the outline of her one, I could see the outline of her underwear and the little notches of her stockings, my first sins of impurity. Next door was Mr. O, the chemist and part-time waltzer. Open nine sharp, close five on the dot. Fresh start, white jacket, every desk. He'd give my mother medicine in a little white envelope to help her sleep when she'd go for her lie down in the afternoons with the curtains closed. Maureen O'Hara herself couldn't hold a candle to your mother, he'd say. At the end of the row, there was Bill the Barbers. Bill had worn a wig for 50 years, a formal one for Sunday Mass, an untidier one for more casual occasions. And if you happened to call to his house, he might have on his after-bath piece. Oh, come in, come in, come in, I'm just throwing the air. A ladies' man, quick with a wink or the saucy word, he'd saunter down the street in his David Niven moustache and Crombie overcoat. I loved his cosy shop of red vinyl and chrome shares, coloured bottles and shaving mugs with the Queen's face, sticky paper with dead flies hanging from the ceiling, a fog of cigarette smoke, ash from his cigarette falling into the gap between your neck and shirt, the cold clippers catching, 
pushing your head down, him blowing at you with his hot breath and your hair falling to the floor in clumps. And Jerry, his apprentice, sweeping it into a bag to be brought to a place where they made wigs for sick people. Maybe that's where Bill got his wig made. He could have been wearing my hair. And the victuallers, the butchers, me to please you, pleased to meet you, a sign said under a drawing of a pig dressed like a man with trousers and a jacket, where the butcher chopped up bad boys, made them into dog food, gristle, bone, organs, and all. Oh, that's wonderful. Gabriel Byrne, Walking with the Ghosts, thank you so much for being on The Literary Life. It was a pleasure, absolute pleasure. And the next time I come to Miami, I'll try to get beyond the airport and I'll come into your bookshop. I would love that. And we can see each other in the real world. That would be fantastic. And keep up the good work because it's really precious in these days when, you know, the easy thing for so many people is to put money in Jeff Bezos' pocket by getting him to deliver something with a drone, you know, in two hours or whatever it is. Um, Nothing takes the place of going into a bookshop where the books are loved and taken care of by people who know about them. And the adventure of a bookshop where you go in and, you know, even if you're the shyest person and you say to a bookseller, have you read anything interesting lately? And uh, a conversation will begin. 